Everyone has a story. How they got here, where they met along the way, the choices they made, the dreams they are chasing. Welcome to Anthologies of Hope. Welcome back to this week's Anthologies of Hope, and I'm so excited to bring you a conversation that has been at the top of mind for over three years. That's close to a full two years before this podcast was even a reality, or even an idea. As always, I'm your host, Rick Osowski, and I'm not a mental health professional in any way, simply a mental health advocate with a passion for storytelling. If you've been listening the past few weeks, we've been previewing some additional content we have coming your way this season, as well as a few big announcements and surprises. Our biggest announcement, which we had planned to let you all in on this week, is going to have to wait just a little bit longer, as it was a hectic one on the home front, and we weren't quite able to dot all our I's and cross all our T's just yet. However, one little surprise we can let you all in on is to be on the lookout for a special Monday edition of Anthologies of Hope for November 11th, Veterans Day, here in the United States. In participation with Hope for the Day, we'll be bringing you some in-depth conversations with veterans of the American Armed Forces to discuss the mental health impacts of joining the military, serving both at home and abroad, as well as what it is like once you return home. On the previously announced project side of the house, look for the Anthologies of Hope blog to launch next week to bring you excellent writing from past guests and friends of the show. It will be kicking off with a blog series titled Eureka, based on inspiration from one of my favorite Comic-Con artists, Monkey Minion Press, and their excellent art book titled Eureka, The Art of Science. Check them out on Instagram at Monkey Minion Press and their website at monkeyminionpress.com to get a head start. We'll also be bringing you our new Mental Health Minute episodes on Fridays in November when we are in between Conversations Cafe events. These shorter episodes will cover practical, research-proven tips on how you can approach your mental health care delivered in a conversational and actionable approach. Starting with two separate episodes to focus on skills and techniques for anxiety and depression respectively, these Mental Health Minute episodes will be accompanied by blog posts of their own, so you can take away any concrete courses of action whenever you may need them. And we're on to today's guests. Allie Downey joins us this week, and as you'll hear as we kick off the interview, this week's episode sets the record for the guests I've known the longest at the time of recording, coming in at somewhere between five and six years. We cover Allie's journey over the past few years through the course of transitioning, the impact on her life, the effects of previous psychological injuries, both diagnosed and undiagnosed, throughout the process, and how important it is to maintain connection with your support circles, both whom you can support and who can support you. I would hazard a guess that Allie's story is not unique from the perspective in which she describes the reality her mind had painted for her. When in actual reality, there was a support system waiting for her, she just felt like too much of a burden to reach out until it was to the point of crisis. I am thankful for her perspective from someone that has lived the ups and downs and comes through it with the advocacy for staying connected to loved ones, staying connected to your support circles, and advocating for yourself even in the darkest of times. Because as long as you have the air in your lungs, you are not alone. You also get to hear a little bit of trivia for how Anthologies of Hope got to look the way it does today. And that is thanks to Allie's work early on in the design and brainstorming of our logo through many iterations of my harebrained also left-brained ideas, before it was finalized by Heart Camp member L. O'Brien. Of course, as it is a new season, we will be starting a new Spotify playlist to join in with all of our long-form interviews. You can check it out right now at anthologiesofhope.com playlist, and it has all the songs associated with the first half of Season 3 right now. You can still find Season 1 at anthologiesofhope.com season-1 playlist, and Season 2 at anthologiesofhope.com season-2 playlist. 
Every week, we'd like to remind you that if you're in a time of crisis, we'll be covering a range of potentially difficult topics. Please use this as a warning to seek help and come back to listen once you are in a more positive season. If you are in need of help, an abundance of international resources can be found on the Find Help pages from Detroit Love and Our Arms and Hope for the Day. Detroit Love and Our Arms can be found at twloha.com slash find-help, and Hope for the Day can be found at hftd.org slash find-help. As always, you can find us at anthologiesofhope.com, on Facebook and Instagram as Anthologies of Hope, on Twitter as Anthologies Pod, or email us directly at Anthologies of Hope, all one word, no punctuation, at gmail.com. Please like, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, as well as letting us know where else you'd like to see our podcast, in case you can't find it there yet. So this week, a conversation I hope you were able to sit with, enjoy, and grow from, as I know it was one that I won't ever forget, and I'm grateful the stars aligned to make this happen. Without further ado... This week's Anthologies of Hope guest, Allie Downey. I was trying to do some of the math earlier, and I think with all of our guests from season one and season two, even including Amanda, this is the first or this is the interview that I've done with a person I've known the longest. And okay. so I was trying to, I was trying to calculate like how long we've known each other. And I think it was 2013 ish. That's what it, it sounded like for me as far as time wise. So I, I was trying to remember all, all the things there. So with so much of history between us, I didn't want to jump in or kind of have a, an awkward prompt to have you jump in at any one point of your story. So I'll start it off with the opening question to you uh, after you just give a little name drop and, and all that stuff would be, when did you know your mental health was something you needed to focus on? So just do a little quick name drop and then you can jump right into that question. Okay. So my name is Allie and I am here in North Carolina. So I knew that I needed to focus on my mental health probably, it was probably about two years after I started transitioning. So that would have been in late 2017 or probably mid 2017. So what I always had something, but it was undiagnosed. It was manageable. I never even thought about it. I thought it was just me, you know? So, and then to go back just slightly so, to where we can start is so I I, I transitioned in, officially in 2016. Uh, that's when I started taking hormones and everything like that. Um, well, let me just say hormones are quite the drugs mm-hmm. because everyone knows hormones can do crazy things. And what they did to me is not only did they help me, sure, but they decided that they are what amplified the mental health that I was already dealing with on a normal basis. And a quick rundown as to what happened is I started taking the hormones and then as they started getting going into my system, I started having multiple mental health things not go wrong that's not the right word but start to affect me and they they slowly built up to the point where I found myself in a psychiatric hospital 
and it was it was when I got out of there that was like that was like okay so what is this mm-hmm. what what is happening unfortunately for me I didn't figure it out earlier and so therefore I lost my I over the course of everything I've lost my family my job uh, lots of friends and everything else and at this point I've I've rebuilt right but but it was definitely rough for a long time there being undiagnosed. So with that, there's kind of a good setup or a softball there for when you mentioned the when you knew you needed to focus on, on your mental health being so far into that journey or after a set number of experiences or occurrences or just issues going on in everyday life that you didn't necessarily attribute to a mental health condition or the real world impact of things happening and and kind of occurring in in your mental health with the, some of the, like you said, you went untreated for a while and and you thought that these things were just me. At what point did you start having the realization or the conversation with yourself or with, with others that this wasn't something that was just me, that it was something that, maybe I'm not supposed to feel this way every day, or maybe I, I could feel better or manage this a little bit differently or handle this a little bit better. So even before I took the hormones, there were, there were things that Anya had said would, would, would talk about, but it was nothing major. So we never really thought much of it. Like that, that was when it was, Oh, it's just me. Mm -hmm. As things ramped up after everything happened, when I got out of the hospital was I started going, I had been seeing a therapist for a while for my gender dysphoria, but then we started branching out into like general mental health at that point, seeing psychiatrists or some medication, things like Mm -hmm. that. Um, But at that point I had already lost everything. So there was no one around to talk to me about what was going on. It was, I was, I was purely alone. I was actually living at Elliot's at the time, and there was no one, no one that could be like, "Hey, you're not acting like you." Mm-hmm. So it was it was purely me trying to figure it out on my own, and that it can be hard when it's such a gradual progression of things for you to realize that it's not the way it's supposed to be. And I can imagine, and in comparison to a lot of other stories that I've had friends tell me from their experiences in psychiatric hospitals as well, that being alone and kind of dealing with all that on your own in that manner, it probably didn't feel too different from the psychiatric hospital experience. So you didn't feel the need or there was no baseline that you could move away from or improve from. It was just, you had the same experience at kind of a one low flatline level that you really any effort that you had at the time because there was no input or I, I guess I would say muted highs or lows that you really couldn't figure out where to go or what to do or kind of what you could do to, to get away from that normal everyday dullness, I would say. Yeah. And it's not necessarily for me, it wasn't, it wasn't a depression dullness. It was actually, so I have a BPD and okay. along with a couple other things. And so I have quite the highs and lows, mm-hmm. right. But being manic was that was the normal for me for so long. Uh, 
it was when it started to dropping down into the crazy lows. That's when I started realizing, oh, now I need to talk to people. But the manic is is really where most of mine um, presents itself. And what what have you done in the past couple of years to manage some of that since through some of the conversation we've had and then in just other areas and just kind of seeing in our, our friend group that even uh, as infrequent as, as they communicate now, but knowing some of what you're doing, but what have you done in the past couple of years in the kind of pseudo political geosocial climate that we're in to manage that for yourself? Because that is something that is going to be like, you, you do have to do that for yourself now, as opposed to, you know, taking taking it for granted and knowing that the 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 healthcare, both physical and mental, that you would need to to kind of keep sustaining everything that will will run down again in a, in a moment, but that's going to be there. So, what have you been doing actively to to take care of that? Um, it's it's a struggle. Um, it, it that's one of the those willpower thing. The the man, managing your mania is like one of the most willpower intensive things mm-hmm. ever. But DBT therapy has been amazing for that, um, and I recommend it to anybody who has who has that who has those kind of issues because. And I can't do the DBT groups, unfortunately, which is which is how they say you should do it because it holds you accountable more due to PTSD from group therapy from the hospital. Okay. Uh, so I can't do groups, but I do it on an individual basis with my therapist, and it, it has been amazing. And I, I still struggle with it. Like I found myself doing something last week and I was like, what am I doing? So, yeah. Do you find yourself able to use a set of tools that you've established or built in kind of the DBT practice that you're able to to pull out of when you need to, or is it something that is really only beneficial when you're one-on-one with your, your therapist? Oh no, I've definitely developed some tools to through DBT and through therapy to help with the mania, but also with, I also have generalized anxiety disorder, which adds to the paranoia. Mm-hmm. Of the and so I wouldn't be able to function at nowadays without, without those tools that I've developed. And a lot of that is learning to think in a logical way, like in a flow chart kind of way. Mm-hmm. I've actually, I you and I are very to, similar in that regard. <laughs> Yeah, I, I whenever like before purchases, I have to stop and like flowchart my way through it to make sure I'm not being manic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the a lot of what I've done recently in the stress, both warranted and undue, of having a newborn uh, is very similar to a lot of what I'm doing to kind of talk myself through some of that and do it in a very flowcharty way, as opposed to what is she crying from and visual almost visualizing that that flow chart in my head as far as hunger diaper tired etc and then navigating how i react and where i go from there as opposed to something where the first you know couple of weeks it was just pure exhaustion so there any sort of noise was an immediate kind of guttural almost animal reaction but now you're able to kind of take that step back and and process it in a very uh flow charty slash like state machine way and mm-hmm. it, it's definitely helped me a thousand times over to be able to process some of that so so hearing you say you have a, a flow charty way of of attacking things is a makes sense to me as well yeah and 
I've, I have recently started going, recently got my anxiety under control enough to go to the LGBT group here in Raleigh. Okay. Um, and I've met some, met some other trans individuals who also have to do similar things when it comes to their dysphoria, which I'm learning. I'm, after hearing that, I've started trying to develop that for my dysphoria as well, but I'm not quite there yet. With all of this, it's not like talking about everything that you're you're going through and kind of dealing with on the on your journey and things like that. It's not in a it's not meant to in any way just kind of be digging up trauma or digging up anything that was survived and already conquered, et cetera. So I mean, we are talking and kind of telling stories of lived experience. And one of my favorite way of couching that was uh, an episode of the Armchair Expert podcast with Dak Shepard when he was talking to when Sophia Bush was on and he asked her about when she was married at a young age on One Tree Hill to her co-star. And she said she didn't really talk about it. And his response was, you don't really, as a, as a third party or as a community, you don't really learn much from the successes you you kind of learn from failures and, and learn from overcoming those failures and adversity and things like that same way in sports like when you're winning everything's happy but you know when you lose that's when you start to be able to figure out the pieces that are that are the cogs in the machine that that need some some grease and, and some work and everything so it's kind of similar here with the lived experience talk that that we have on on each of the episodes where it's not like we're again just having it be another therapy session to dig through and dig up and kind of drag all of the things that make everybody feel like crap or the general anxiety and, and all of the, everything that, that runs the gamut there. But it, it is something to say that these are things that everybody deals with. Mm-hmm. So these are the things that we should be talking about. Like you said, you've been able to go out to some of the other groups now and talk to people that are dealing with some things. Whereas before that may have been something you never thought would have even crossed your mind to kind of say that to someone in, any capacity yeah exactly uh, let alone out out in public so that's really what we're kind of doing here and the the story and just framing all of the conversations that we have here is making sure that we're bringing the lived experiences that each of us shares and probably more lived experiences that are common among all of us just because we haven't shared them or we have felt the stigma to be quiet um, or that we shouldn't say something about it or that we shouldn't share it it makes me different. It makes me X, Y, Z. Like there's, there's so many different things there that as far as why uh, we silence ourselves, but again, it's kind of just as we feel comfortable about them, kind of bringing it up, talking about it and making sure that it's known that we're all dealing with something in some way. So if we keep the conversation open, then there's always kind of room for folks to jump into. So that was a very long winded way of saying, thank you for sharing everything so far. (laughs) about kind of what you've what you've dealt with where you've got to and everything that you've kind of built not built but everything you, you've been carrying with you on your journey so far but with that like what are some of the things that have been beneficial to you in that journey I mean you mentioned therapy some groups and, and so what are some of the things that have worked for you what are some of the things that didn't work for you what are things that uh, I mean we kind of talked about this a little on messenger uh, uh, a little while back but like what are some things that you wish you knew about sooner and then what are some of the practices that you're kind of looking forward to to managing in the the near future so to start with what it i will say that if there was greater awareness at a younger age about 
mental health and about gender, you know, awareness in general, that would have helped me immensely. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sure, and I'm sure it would help other people immensely. Um, for, cause if let, let's say I had started this journey back in high school, you know, or, or back in middle school, like mm-hmm. my friend's kids is doing, you, you have from an earlier age, you're able to learn how to cope and handle and, and it just, the earlier you can learn those things, the, the better you can improve your life. There, yeah, I mean, there's less that's just, I mean, for lack of a better word, there's, there's less hardened in you, both, you know, mentally, physically, socially, emotionally, where, I, I mean, it's always like kids are, kids have, you know, bounce back, they're, they got bendy bones, all, all that stuff. So it's kind of like the same thing where like you end up having more of a resilient spirit at a younger age, you're able to, to accommodate more and, and kind of navigate that a little bit easier, as opposed to when you have been around the world for a little bit longer, and you just have kind of you've become more calcified, and it's harder to, to change and, and adapt. So that that does uh, go a long way there. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, and along those same lines, like, I'm happy that I started therapy when I did for the gender dysphoria. Because I wouldn't be as far along in that journey if it wasn't for that. Because she has been amazing. And I've been going to the same one for years. She's a really good friend now. And so, and then that has made me realize that as a kid, I had a lot of misconceptions about therapy, as a lot of people do, right? And it wasn't until I started going that I I realized exactly what, like what it entailed and Mm -hmm. how helpful it could be. That was my next question was at at what age do you think it would have been beneficial to start or at what age do you think looking back, it it could have been helpful. And then the second part of that is when you did start, was it due to gender dysphoria and a lot of the, what you would need to do to transition or was it something else that was a part of that as well? I, at this point feel like children should go not, I, I'll say this, there's no hard and fast rule, right? But that everyone should should go to therapy from a fairly young age just to be able to learn new things and be able to have someone to talk to that they know is a safe place, that they won't get ridiculed from peers, they won't get looked down upon from adults, you know, just someone safe space to talk to, you can, you can learn things. And so at this point, I, I fully believe that. Um, and for the second part of that, I actually started going for marriage counseling. Okay. Um, and then it was, and then we continued even through through the ups and downs of the of the end of our marriage for there through there, and but then I, then I also talked to her about going to her for my gender dysphoria, and so I started going to her on my own for that, and then it's just increased to what it is now, which is basically like life. <laughs> Every, everyday stuff. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And I'm glad you, you phrase it the way you did where everybody should go to, to therapy at, at a young age of some sort, because the way I kind of advertise it or the way I, I advocate for it is everybody should be able to go somewhere and just have the time dedicated to them to say whatever the hell they're dealing with and they're not going to get judged for it. And that person's sole job is to sit there and, you know, listen and give you constructive feedback. It's not always going to be good. It can be bad. It can be infuriating, 
but it is going to be constructive feedback. And obviously therapists are, are people too. So you need to find a good fit and everything, but sure. there is, there is some diligence in, in fi- figuring that out. So as long as you have the means and obviously with some of the, the public health that's out there, we're working towards that and, you know, doing what we can to not get that taken away for more universal access to mental health care and, and some of that stuff. But it, it goes a long way to have folks to be able to just go, these are my problems. And then they can, in the, the confines of that room, deal with it, yell, scream, cry, just get it off their chest as opposed to doing it to the person in front of them at the checkout line because they're taking up too much time or something like that. Yeah. So there, there's there's a lot there where it just, you know, it, it levels the playing field on everybody's emotions and and a lot of the things that you would normally try to deal with if you kept it bottled up. I mean, Hope for the Day likes to use the the metaphor of valving out pressure. And yeah. so just always being able to do that proactively and, and valving that out is, is a good way of doing it in just kind of being proactive about therapy and not, not using it at a time of crisis. So I, I'm glad that's a, a, a mindset that, that you've got there. Yeah, I mean, well, speaking of bottling it up, like my mom died back when I was in high school and I never dealt with it mm-hmm. until recently. So if, if I had been in therapy, I would have had a chance in a place to do so you've talked a lot there as far as the the passing of your mom and i mean if there's anything more you want to you want to jump on this just uh once i once i rattle this stuff off go ahead but the the passing of your mom divorce and then the dealing with generalized anxiety uh gender dysphoria like a lot of this stuff like what are ways that you would say are positive beneficial and helpful ways that friends and loved ones can support you either in something if, and again, you don't want to diagnose somebody externally without having a conversation with them, but what are, what are ways through all of that, that, you know, have been helpful for you for, for loved ones to support you or what are other ways that you would say would be beneficial for others that may be experiencing that and they don't know how to phrase how others could reach out to help. Mm-hmm. So one of my biggest things when I'm in times of crisis is I feel like I'm putting, I'm a burden to other people, right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to reach out to them. And so one of the biggest things that's come to help me, and this is, the, I don't mean to put the onus on others by any means, but there, there are people, a few people in my life who, knowing what I deal with, if they don't hear from me for a little bit, they will reach out. And that is one of the for me, that's one of the biggest things that you can do because I just, I just get lonely to the point where I can't function. So that, that's huge, but that takes an initial conversation. You, you can't just expect someone to, to do that. Mm-hmm. So conversation is big. Being open, being open to, to hear and listen. So my, I didn't talk to my dad about things for a long time because I, he's the type of person that he would want to fix it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to talk to him about it because I knew he couldn't fix it. Fix it, right? Um, Well, after everything that happened, he got very upset with me that I didn't talk to him about it. So now I know that if I'm having a bad day, I can just call him, and he will listen, and he will attempt to fix it while we're on the phone without meaning to. But Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) I think just openness, and if you know that you, if you're friends with somebody or or you're or a loved one of yours struggles, and you know that they struggle and 
all of a sudden you don't see them posting on Facebook. I don't know. Call them. Mm-hmm. Like that's one of the biggest things in, in my mind is just making sure that they know that you're there. Like that is like the biggest in my mind. Again, I'm glad you, you phrased that the way you did because the, we usually end up having whenever there's a loss due to suicide in the media and it's a celebrity of someone of notoriety, there ends up being a case of, you know, and I'm thankful for it of, you know, reach out, reach out to your friends, reach out to as much as you can, as much as you need to, whenever you see them, reach out to your strong friends, et cetera. But then there always also is is kind of the, the counter blowback of that, of saying like, do more, see more that doesn't really do much. And so there's this, this little much of a impedance mismatch when, when some of that happens. So to hear you say that is, is very validating and, and heartwarming to me to, to kind of that I much like your father try to fix things, but knowing uh, it's a case where we have the ability to do a lot just by reaching out and you're not always going to be able to, to fix everything, but just by sending out those, that positive energy and letting folks know that, that you're there and that you see them and you see either things are different or that you're something may be a little off that there can be a lot of validation on, on their end to understand that they have value. They have, uh, you know, their existence is seen and, and known and it's not just something where their their inertia is carrying them off of, of the, the screen or, or kind of the your radar so that it just being known and being seen can go a long way to then taking steps to get themselves out of that. Yeah, I mean I have a perfect example and, and you're you're in this example and you may know what I'm talking about already. Um is when when I was back in times a time of crisis, I had chosen that day to be done and then I got a package from you with Tola stuff. <laughs> and I was like, look at that. And it's weird to say that's one of my favorite memories because I'm sorry you were in that space to begin with. But the fact that we were able to have that connection and that communication is something that is very, I, I'm very grateful for. Um, and so as we're sitting here recording and I'm seeing a heart camp poster that I sent you over your shoulder. (laughs) It's very, very similar where, I I mean, there was, I mean, you were present at heart camp before I even really told you about it because we had a conversation May, what is it? May 1st or April 30th of last year, like early that morning. And you were going through a custody battle and you had said you would just that day or that morning, had had figured out or had found out that you you hadn't lost custody and that you had gained shared custody or whatever the arrangement ended up being you had you had mentioned that and it was something you were you were definitely fighting for and so i like i saw that and i just you know started crying when i was reading messenger and i i took that into heart cam and that was one of the first things i shared on the the morning of the second day and so it was basically like having that be a case of knowing and just, just being authentic and being and having and helping people be seen goes a long way to know and to validate 
everything that, that you just said that just kind of reaching out and being there goes a long way because those experiences are definitely bi-directional they're because you just sharing that with me helped me more than you would ever know um and then whereas something as insignificant as me as a shirt and some wristbands and a lanyard and, and stuff like that sending it to you was probably more than i ever expected it to have an impact for so it's it's when you have friends and loved ones in your life, like don't give up on it because it, it's not saying that you can't have boundaries and you can't, you can't have constructive conversations and, and things like that. But there are, there are things where when people need help, you can show up and you can be there to, to help them, not necessarily to fix it, but to support sure. them in a, in a variety of ways. Support. Yeah. Transitioning to kind of the last topic that, that you had teed up here was, what have you learned or what would you say is valuable in learning to reach out as an individual when you want to, or when you don't want to, but you need to, or, you know, you need to, but you feel like you can't type thing. That for me and for a lot of people is, is a, is a huge struggle. Just hearing, talking to other people, listening, listening to the, to the show. Like uh, it's, it's a common thing. That's, that's a struggle for a lot of people. I will, Last week, it took I, I was in bed for about eight hours before I was finally able to call my dad. Okay. It, the whole time I wanted to message somebody, I kept looking for somebody that I could reach out to. But every time I found someone, it was, they're probably busy. Mm-hmm. Or, I've reached out to them recently. I don't want to keep bothering them. So I, I say that to then, to, to then proceed with, You need to, even if you feel like you keep bothering them. Like, don't. M- most of the time, you're not you're not bothering them, <laughs> even when you think you are. Mm-hmm. And that's what I have to keep reminding myself: is that no, they would rather you reach out to them. And that is still something, even after all this time, even after everything I've been through. It's, I haven't found a trick for it. Um, I wish I have, I w- I've, I've talked to many people trying to figure out the easy way to, to reach out for support. And, but I will say that the, I was never able to call the crisis line. I just was never able to bring myself to do it. But the mm-hmm. text line, I have been able to use that a few times. I just thought of that real, real quick. That has been um, a lifesaver. Because, is that the crisis text line? Yeah, the crisis text line. It's actually easier for me, for someone like me, to text about it than it is to call somebody because it feels like, oh, I'm not bothering them as much if I'm just texting with them. Mm-hmm. And that's what Amanda's advocated for that, and she's used that multiple times. And I, she even mentioned that in her episode, where again, and even with, I think in one of our other other episodes, I think maybe it was when we flipped the script and she interviewed me, I kind of talked about the app generation Mm -hmm. where there's a lot of help and a lot of resources that lowering the bar to entry, if there's an app for it, you'll do just about anything. So the the fact of getting access to it through a text channel goes a long way as opposed to, again, like you said, needing to pick up a phone, make that introduction, have that, that voice connection where it's like, no, like all I'm doing is texting something and that can very much easily going back to some of the beginning of the conversation, you can 
navigate that text conversation very much like a flow chart. So it helps your brain to start processing it a little bit more and figuring out where to, to go when you are in crisis and be able to, to kind of start coming down from the, that level of severity. Mm-hmm. So with, with all of that, we, we've talked a lot about it, you know, what you've been through, what you've, how you've been dealing with it, both constructively and like on a personal level and some of those things, what would, or what are some of the the self-care things that you're doing when you're not, you know, actively working on trying to, to maintain some of this and, and kind of deal with, with everything we've talked about or daily life? Like what are some of the self-care things that you're doing to valve out some of that pressure to, to kind of get back to where you can, you can have a, 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 a little bit more of a manageable baseline for everyday life. Self-care. Yeah. Self-care is definitely important. I, I try and coach other people on self-care as well. So for me, self-care means exercising, which with my new schedule, I just started, hasn't happened in a couple of weeks. So that's been rough, but hopefully soon, but then I also, you know, you know, I work on cars and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so doing that, that thinking about that, planning that anything that focuses you, in my opinion, whether it's taking a bath, whether it's building a car, petting your cat, anything that gives you a chance to calm your mind and focus and kind of take care of yourself in a, in a relaxed way is self-care in my mind. Maybe that's coming from someone whose main problem is racing thoughts. Mm-hmm with anxiety and things, maybe that'd be different for other people. But for, for me, that, that is the biggest form of self-care is being able to calm that in a way that is healthy. I, I would absolutely agree. And I don't know if a lot of that comes from a long career in tech, but it, it for me, it's I end up having that as a case of we're going to do this, then we're going to do this, then we're going to do this, and then mm-hmm. we can do this and this. And and so like it ends up being a case of like everything all the time right now. Um, and there's this real need for immediacy in a lot of responses and action and everything that we're doing. And so for me, it, it's very, it, it is very interesting that a lot of what I'm doing is with focus. Like when I was in North Carolina, a lot of my self-care was kind of the wood shop that I'd built in the garage. Mm-hmm. So that was me focusing and, and having there's a, you can't really jump too far ahead in, you know, a woodworking project <laughs> or, or else you're not going to get very far, you know, where, how, what we met through as, as far as playing magic, that's mm-hmm. something that for me, again, very similarly, it allows you to focus. Like there's, you can only think so far ahead in so many different avenues and, and, but then just having it be a very structured and very constrained focus thought, thought there, I would hazard to guess that you and I have very, not necessarily the same self-care interests or, or some of that, but just as, as wide of a spectrum with everything that we do. I mean, with, you said exercising cars, would you consider your art to be self-care? Absolutely. I will very often just bury myself in in a piece of artwork and come out of it three hours later feeling so much better Mm -hmm. and that's almost it it, it is you know exercise of its own of its own accord where i i would hazard a guess and i'm by no means an expert in the field but i would hazard to guess that there's probably some sort of dopamine response when when you're coming out on that other side of, of art as opposed to you know a 
going for a run or a good workout or, or something like that. So I, I would hazard to guess that they're they're very similar in physiological response of some sort. I, I would I would like to agree with that probably yeah. <laughs> so I mean we can we can start to wrap up and there's just like a, a couple of the closing questions that that we'll go with here. But before we do, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Anything you, that you we haven't really touched on that you wanted to dive deeper into or just anything that you wanted to, to kind of talk about before we wrapped up? I would like to just briefly hit on the fact that the mental health stuff and the gender dysphoria stuff mimic each other in a lot of forms. Okay. As far as needing the self care or needing someone to talk to or finding a way to work through it. It's very interesting they're not the same in in at all or mm-hmm. but they how to how to handle them is uh is very similar and i would like to say for anyone else who is going through who has gender dysphoria to 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 think about that and and see if any of the same things that you would use for mental health help you for that yeah we're uh, 100% where it's some similar treatments can work for different symptoms, I, I guess could, yeah. could be. And then that goes back to, to, to different conditions or uh, issues that, that you're dealing with where similarly where it's almost like for the, the medical field or just because of a lot of the journey that we talked about when during Amanda's episode, uh, but there's a lot of, certain medications that are used for kind of like off-brand uh labeling so that Mm -hmm. that ends up being a case where you could you could say that where there's a lot that you could do between the two for gender dysphoria and the the wide array of of mental health issues that they have very similar applications of the same types of of treatments and uh self-care techniques and what you can do to to kind of navigate through that because you end up having a lot of similar responses from the brain and the body connection and, and a lot of that. So yeah, that, that's a, a good point to point out, especially now in the the current climate where no matter what happens, it's always a, a mental health kind of consideration as, as the first response to anything that is, is happening, be it a, a neutral issue or just a, a negative issue where it tends to be a, a, a mental health consideration concern or it's also the the stigma associated with mental health mental health is any sort of a a non-normative i guess would be the word okay or or accepted non-normative from Mm -hmm. the the generalized societal term i would generally tend to myself look at that as more the closed-minded or historically bigoted type terms but as far as where where we're going there so the as far as mainstream media and a lot of the current culture it tends to to just kind of put that in a box and then that's an easy label for something that either mm-hmm. we don't understand or what scares us or etc and in the the royal uh term and so to have that distinction where i mean you're saying here that these practices and a lot of the stuff that that you've done for one help with the other and that at a time did you feel there was crossover or there was a lot of 
projection from one onto the other that you didn't know what you were dealing with or, or kind of or how to deal with one and not the other when you could almost deal with both of them through the same techniques yeah when because both because i started dealing with both at the same time it was really hard to separate them out in in certain instances a lot of like, a lot of trouble just picking them apart yeah figuring out like it's hard to treat the symptoms if you don't know if you can't figure out the symptoms mm -hmm. so it for a little while there it was a struggle to figure out what do i need to do in order to to help them individually and then i started realizing that i could help them both and then sometimes in my life i've had to focus on one and i've had to focus on the other and it, it's all cyclical it's up and down so and also there it comes to a point where if you're doing something that helps both but you know you need to focus on one like there's there sh shouldn't be a level of like personal guilt that now like you're focusing on one over the other but even just doing activity x is still going to end up helping with with both sides of the coin there type thing right so for for a while there um when i was in in real bad crisis i was focusing almost exclusively on my mental health um and i started getting really feeling really bad that i wasn't progressing my my tra transition mm -hmm. and then it was around that time that i realized i could kind of kind of work towards both at at the same time and it it helped so yeah it makes a lot of sense so if there's as we start to wrap up, if there's one thing that you'd want someone to take away from your story, what would that be? It would be related to the, for loved ones and friends, what we were talking about. I think of what we talked about tonight, that's probably the, one of the most important topics that, that, we, that we touched on. And that is just being aware of your friends and family that struggle. I just wanted to kind of close and say thank you as I opened with this being the guest who I've known the longest uh, at, at time of recording, but also because Anthologies of Hope wouldn't look the way it does without some of your help. So the reason the, the logo does look the way it does and the selection of the orange, the yellow, and the pink as I'm sitting here looking at uh, the logo right in front of me is because some of your, your contribution where due to having your art background, I reached out to have some folks who wanted to, to help get the ball rolling and just some of your brainstorming and me being very left brain and saying, this is what I think the logo should look like. And then you being able to translate that into something that is a more of a artistic uh, manner and then bringing back some of the color theory and then moving through some of it and then having somebody else kind of run with your feedback based off of what I, my input and then coming up with a, with a new design. So you were very much the Tony Stark in the cave, Iron Man, <laughs> Mach 1 or Mark 1 version of, of the logo. So I, I, we wouldn't be where we are today without your contribution to the podcast. So I just want to say thank you for that. Absolutely. I'm super happy that you do this. Like when, when you first brought it up, it was, it was uh, very inspiring that you were even thinking about taking this on because it's, it's quite the task. With some of just what you know you've shared here through our our friendship but then also with just the feedback that we've gotten from each of the at least one to two conversations i have per episode that that come out as far as folks coming up to me and talking about it and and with all of the response we've had with a very small community of guests so far but the wide acceptance of the kind of the audience that's where we're planning for the season to, to open the aperture for many more guests and 
I just had a laundry list of guest words like, hey, it'd be cool if, if we had all these people that we've met through the first year of the podcast to, to have come on. And within a day, like 80% of the people came back and was like, yeah, I can inter- I can record at this time. <laughs> and so just to, to see how much of an impact it's had in that in that time frame has, has been pretty awesome. And so I, I'm glad to, to have you on as, as part of season three. Awesome. Thank you so very much for joining us this week. We hope you had as good a time listening as we had recording the interview. Don't forget to check out anthologiesofhope.com backslash playlist for all the awesome songs that will get added each week. You can find us on social media at Anthologies of Hope on Facebook and Instagram and Anthologies Pod on Twitter. It would be great if you could subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or Google and leave us a review. As always, remember, everyone has a story. And it's about time we start listening.